You're listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. Hello, I'm Juan de Lara, Cultural Manager at Asia House, and this is our sixth episode of our second season of Arts in Isolation, an initiative in partnership with the Baraka Trust and made possible with the support of the Altair Trust and the Alhambra Trust for Culture. Today's episode is devoted to one of the most admired masterpieces of the world, the Taj Mahal, a monument of perfect harmony and excellent craftsmanship that has come up to embody and symbolize eternal love. To take us along into this fantastic journey, I have with me Mehrin Shidarasvi. Mehrin is an art historian specializing in the art and architecture of Mughal South Asia. She is the in-house editor at the Nasser David Khalili Collection of Islamic Art and she regularly teaches at universities and museums in London and Oxford. Mehreen is also assistant editor for the International Journey of Islamic Architecture. And I believe she has advice on several documentaries on the Taj Mahal. So watch out as you might have seen her on TV on several occasions before. Welcome Mehreen, it's great having you here and I am very happy that you can tell us a little bit more about the Taj Mahal, which has recently been named one of the new seven wonders of the world. I think it would be useful to start by asking you, what is the Taj Mahal? It is widely known to be a tomb, but it has minarets, which are often associated with mosques. Yeah, um, well, the Taj Mahal is definitely a tomb. It was built by the fifth Mughal emperor Shah Jahan for his wife, Mumtaz Mahal. It's at the heart of a large funerary complex, which also includes a mosque, an assembly hall, the funerary garden, four other smaller tombs for Mughal women, gateways, a caravanserai and bazaar quadrants. And on the opposite side of the river, we can include as part of this wider complex a viewing platform. So when we talk about the Taj Mahal, we, we think of just the tomb itself, but it is part of a much larger complex, which is quite an important point. The Taj Mahal is one of only four monumental imperial Mughal tombs that were constructed meaning tombs in which the emperors were buried in, but it was never actually intended to be one. It was constructed solely as the tomb of Mumtaz Mahal, but after Shah Jahan died, he was buried there as well. So it gets transformed into an imperial tomb. And so ultimately stands as part of this tradition of imperial Mughal tomb architecture, of which there are four monumental um, mausoleums those of the emperors Humayun, Akbar, Jahangir, and then the Taj Mahal. And the tomb to which it has the most resemblance is the first of these monumental tombs, the tomb of Humayun, the second Mughal emperor, which is in Delhi. And the architecture of the Taj can be seen as a refinement and a perfection of the architecture of Humayun's tomb in form, in its ground plan, and in its style. But of course, in comparison, the decoration of the Taj Mahal is just dazzling. Uh, it has an aesthetic of white marble and delicate pH fritura, as opposed to the predominant use of red sandstone and the much plainer aesthetic of Humayun's mausoleum. And another way in which the Taj differs from these earlier imperial tombs, and actually from most other Mughal tombs, is that it's not built in the center of its tomb garden, but rather at the end it abuts the Yumna River and is part of a large group of riverfront architectural projects which dominated in Mughal Agra. So when you walk into the tomb garden, the, the Taj is actually quite a distance away and you have to traverse the entire uh, garden quadrant before you get to the monuments. 
its visibility is heightened because the tomb itself stands on a raised platform, which has these four minars at its corners. And I do think we need to make a distinction between minarets and minars. It's quite a little you know, difference in terminology, but whenever you say minarets, you automatically think of mosques or other religious buildings. And that's not the case here. So with their inclusion at the Taj Mahal, I think we can look at these towers as a framing device built apart from the actual tomb, but being there to enhance the visual distinction of the mausoleum. And I do think it's important to note that this wasn't the first time that such towers were incorporated into an imperial Mughal tomb. Minars were an integral part of the architecture of the Emperor Jahangir's mausoleum in Lahore. And they were also used on top of the gateway to the tomb complex of the Emperor Akbar in Sikandra, which is outside of Agra. So I'm sure that our listeners are quite interested in these two figures, in Mumtaz Mahal and Shah Jahan. Who were they and why did he decide to bury her there? So Shah Jahan was the third son of the Emperor Jahangir. He was born in 1592 and he was actually given the name of Khuram. He was the darling of his grandfather, the Emperor Akbar, and he was actually taken away from his mother to be raised by one of Akbar's wives, uh, Rukhaya Sultan Begum, who had been childless. He was also his father's favorite, and he was given duties and privileges which were normally reserved for the firstborn. In 1617, he was effectively designated as Jahangir's heir, and he was given the title Shah Jahan, which is how we know him, meaning king of the world. He was a very effective military campaigner. He had an incredible interest in architecture. And until 1622, he was a shoe in for the throne on Jahangir's death. After 1622, things got a bit complicated with the politics of succession, but he ultimately did become the fifth emperor when his father died in October 1627, and Shah Jahan formally acceded to the Mughal throne in February 1628. Now, Mumtaz Mahal, um, her name was actually Arjuman Banu Begum, and she was the daughter of an important Mughal courtier of Khurasani descent. So his family uh, was from Iran. The courtier's name uh, was Abul Hassan, but he's more commonly known by his title, Asaf Khan. Asaf Khan's sister was Jahangir's last and favorite wife, the Empress Noor Jahan. And their father, who held the title of Ittimad Daula, was the highest official in the empire under Jahangir. So this was a family that was quite entwined with the um, Mughal royal family. Arjuman Banu Begum was born the same year as Prince Khurram in 1592, and the two were then betrothed in 1607 when he was 15 and she was 14. But they weren't married until five years later in 1612, and that's when she was titled Mumtaz Mahal, meaning the chosen one of the palace. Once the two were married, um, Shah Jahan effectively ignored his other wives for the 19 years that they were together. She went with him everywhere, even on military campaigns, and they had 14 children together, seven of which survived. I know that's a lot. Um, four sons and three daughters were the surviving children. And it was just after giving birth to their 14 child that she passed away from birthing complications in 1631. And then construction on the Taj Mahal began 
the following year. I have the feeling we're truly witnessing a story of real love. Or do you actually think that this has been exaggerated throughout the centuries? Do we have any sources that confirm this love that has been so exalted? Well, the first thing I want to say is that, yes, of course, there is this popular opinion and appeal of the Taj Mahal being the quintessential monument to love. And it's true that Shah Jahan was heartbroken when Mumtaz Mahal died. But the tomb as a structure and the whole complex was meant to reflect the political power and perfection of Shah Jahan's reign. So it's actually a very political monument in addition to being a commemorative one. But we do have sources that confirm this deep relationship that they had. And um, one of his court historians wrote the following. And here I'm, I'm quoting from Abba Koch's seminal book on the Taj Mahal in which she quotes Shah Jahan's court historian, Kazvini. And he writes, the intimacy, deep affection, attention and favor, which his majesty had for the cradle of excellence, which was another title from Mumtaz Mahal, exceeded by a thousand times what he felt for any other. And always that lady of the age was the companion, close confidant, associate, and intimate friend of that successful ruler in hardship and comfort, joy and grief, when traveling or in residence. The mutual affection and harmony between the two had reached a degree never seen between a husband and wife among the classes of rulers or among the other people. And this was not merely out of sexual passion. The excellent qualities, pleasing habits, outward and inward virtues, and physical and spiritual compatibility on both sides caused great love and affection and extreme affinity and familiarity. Now, this is a remarkable statement to read, especially when you know that this is in an official court history of Shah Jahan, and he approved everything that was written in it. So especially the part about the physical nature of their relationship being written down for prosperity is quite, uh, quite remarkable. Now, once Mumtaz Mahal died, Shah Jahan went into deep mourning. He retired from public view for a week, which was quite remarkable when you consider that part of the daily rituals of the emperor was to hold audiences and to make himself physically visible to his subjects. But he eschewed that for a week while he was in this deep mourning. He started to wear white, which is of course the color of mourning. And it's reported that he cried so much over the next months and years that his eyesight deteriorated. He had to start wearing spectacles and um, his beard ultimately turned completely white as well in the you know, kind of immediate uh, years following Mumtaz Mahal's death. So I think it's very fair to say that their relationship was very, very deep and, and there was a, a true love there. Wow, both spiritual and physical connection. This I'm sure was not the case for most rulers. How fascinating these records. And because we were discussing legends, I bet there are many associated to this monument. Could you perhaps share with us some of the ones you have come across? Yes, of course. Um, typically, I get asked about a few things. So one of them is the rumor that the architects had their hands cut off or that they were killed or that they were maimed in some way. 
so that they couldn't replicate the magnificence of the tomb anywhere else. Um, but these are completely untrue rumors and um, they're meant to perpetuate this idea of the ruler as a despot. Um, and you see it, you hear these rumors, not only in relation to the Taj Mahal, but quite a lot in relation to any famous building globally. Um, so this is kind of this, you know, idea which gets perpetuated in oral tradition, it makes for a good story, but there's absolutely no proof, you know, that anything like that happens. And in fact, we know the names of the architects and master builders associated with the Taj Mahal, um, and that's actually quite rare in Mughal architecture. And these weren't just architects or people who built, you know, who, who did the planning. They were, they were courtiers. They were within the court administration as well. So they very much continue to live after the Taj Mahal and to work on other projects also. Um, then there is a story of the Black Taj Mahal. The idea that Shah Jahan intended to build an identical structure in black marble to be his own tomb on the other side of the river so that the two structures would mirror each other across the water. And this is an absolutely lovely idea, but there is no archeological or historical proof for this. Um, it was actually a rumor that starts with a Frenchman at the Mughal court, Jean-Baptiste Tavernier, who was in Agra in 1665. And he wrote um, that Shah Jahan had actually begun to construct his tomb opposite the Taj Mahal on the other side of the river, but that the war of succession between his sons caused work on it to stop. And that when Aurangzeb, you know, won and became the next ruler, he just didn't carry on with the construction. Now, Tavernier doesn't say anything about the form of the tomb, the color of the tomb that was being uh, started or that he wrote was being started. So all of that is kind of later additions to this initial rumor. And unfortunately, there, there is no evidence to support that this was ever even started. Archaeological um, digs actually did take place uh, on that space opposite the Taj Mahal. The most destructive rumor, which continues to today, is the idea that the Taj Mahal was originally a Hindu monument, a temple dedicated to Shiva. And this story was given a pseudo-academic standing when an individual named Oak wrote several books on this um, in the early part of the 20th century. Its idea, which still holds traction, you'll find articles written about this even, you know, written in the last few years and long arguments on social media about this as well. It's an idea, unfortunately, that the followers of Hindutva ideology push very hard. And just as a kind of personal aside, um, you know, yesterday I, I just sent out a tweet saying that I was recording a podcast on the Taj Mahal today. And I was very excited to share this, you know, monument uh, with the wider public. And I, I got responses from people who were immediately, you know, parroting this kind of information that it was a Hindu temple, that the Mughals were evil, that the architect's hands had been cut off or that they'd been trampled by elephants. Um, and that, you know, it's it's not Mughal. And the entire history of the monument, the monument itself um, speaks to its actual history. So this is an unfortunate um, legend, which 
which still persists, but which has no basis in fact. Because we're talking about the origin of the structure itself. Why did Shah Jahan decide to build this building at the banks of the Yamuna River? Well, Agra at the time was the predominant imperial capital of the Mughals. Until Shah Jahan built his new capital city in, in Delhi, Shah Jahanabad, the capital of the empire shifted, but it was predominantly Agra, and it was Agra at this time. Um, so it was where, you know, um, Shah Jahan was being primarily uh, located when he was in, in a capital. And so the city held that distinction for that, you know, for that purpose. Um, there is a lot of construction, mogul construction in, in Agra, um, and including, you know, various other funerary monuments. And the location of the Taj Mahal on the riverbank, if you look at uh, like a map of the city, this was a space which would have afforded kind of maximum viewing of the Taj Mahal. The site had actually been owned by a Rajput courtier of Shah Jahan's, and he bought the site from that Hindu noble. So potentially ideas like that feed into this idea that there was something, a temple pre-standing and that, you know, the Taj Mahal was then built over it. But, but again, there's nothing in that. There had been a, you know, a kind of domestic structure there, a palace there, um, but the site was purchased then by Shah Jahan to be the site of the Taj Mahal. But being the structure in India, there must have been some synthesis of Hindu elements in it. Were there any negotiations with the Hindu culture at the time? By the reign of Shah Jahan, you have an established repertoire of styles, motifs, and forms which comprise Mughal architecture. The inclusion of local South Asian architectural elements entered the repertoire of Islamic architecture in the region in the 13th century, so actually pre-Mughal, um, in the Sultanate period. So items, for example, like the chhatris, which surround the dome of the Taj Mahal, so those little domed kiosks, um, or the beautiful jolly screens, the pierced marble and sandstone window grills, which become ubiquitous in Mughal architecture. These are pre-Islamic, I mean, they are like local. These are local architectural elements, but they got absorbed into the building vocabulary of Indo-Islamic architecture earlier in the Sultanate era. So by the time we get into the Mughal period, especially by the time we get to the 1630s, when the Taj Mahal is being built, we have a style of building, a decorative program, and a concept of architecture and architectural space, which is purely Mughal. And I'm quite interested in your personal view. What is the most marvelous aspect for you? Is it the materials, perhaps the symmetry? So this is a building in a space which really takes your breath away. I remember the first time I saw it in 2009, I was undertaking my first research trip to India and I was having a really frustrating time with officials on the ground who weren't allowing me to take in my camera equipment because you're not allowed to take in tripods and whatnot, but I had all these permissions from the Archaeological Survey of India to allow me to do this. So I, I was having this frustrating time. I was in this really negative headspace but when I was finally able to get in 
and I saw this monument in the distance, it just, it grabs you, it, it holds you. It's one of these iconic structures, which you think you've seen pictures of so many times that there's no way it can live up to this expectation, but, you know, but it properly does. We can see in the Taj Mahal and in its complex, the zenith of Mughal architecture, the coming together and perfection of what came before it. And this is due to Shah Jahan as the patron, to his own desires and demands when it came to his architectural projects. I mentioned Ebba Koch before. She's literally written the book on the Taj Mahal. And she's convincingly argued that we see in the perfection of the Taj Mahal the perfection of Shah Jahan's rule, his projection of himself as his perfect ruler. And these are ideas which his court historians were writing at the time as well in the contemporary chronicles. Now, one reflection of this perfection is the symmetry of the site. The complex as a whole is designed to be bilaterally symmetrical to the point that the buildings on either side of the tomb, on one side you have a mosque, on the other side you have an assembly hall, they have completely different functions, but they are mirror images of each other. And then the tomb itself was designed to be perfectly radially symmetrical, both on the exterior and the interior. And when it was completed, the symmetry was intact. Today, there's only one way in which the symmetry is broken, and it occurred when Shah Jahan died. So as the building was planned and executed to be the burial site of Mumtaz Mahal, her cenotaph in the monument, which is what you see when you walk in today, and her sarcophagus, which is in the crypt below, they lie at the exact center of the building. When Shah Jahan died and his body was brought to the Taj Mahal and buried, the eventual placement of his cenotaph and his sarcophagus, they actually broke the perfect symmetry of the space because his funerary markers are then off center because they're next to Mumtaz Mahal's. The aesthetic of the building is certainly striking, being fully encased in white marble, decorated with delicate Pietro Dura decoration, carved floral designs, and inlaid black marble Quranic inscriptions. But one of the things I find most magnificent about the tomb and the space is actually its symbolic associations, not the architecture. Remember, I said earlier that the Taj Mahal is a perfection of Humayun's tomb. So, and this might come as a shock to people who are listening, but the architecture of the Taj Mahal isn't actually anything new. It's a refinement of what was built before. And don't get me wrong, it's striking, it's beautiful, and it's unique in its excellence. But this is why the conceptual ideas and the symbolic associations actually mean more to me in terms of the importance of the building, that there is a parallel made between the gardens of paradise in which the deceased dwell and the funerary gardens of the complex. The idea that the Taj is an earthly replica of Mumtaz Mahal's heavenly uh, dwelling. And in the idea that whatever else this building is, it's also a monument to the perfection of the ruler who built it, representing the perfection of his rule. And I think it epitomizes for me the idea that architecture is not just about space and function, but that it usually has other inherent symbolic associations. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful introduction to the building. You certainly have taken us on a journey in which to just start scrapping the nuances and complexities of this building of the Taj Mahal. And as a final question, I always like to ask about its relevance. So alongside it standing as a symbol of undying love, 
why does this building continue to be relevant to us, to the public nowadays? I would say that the Taj Mahal still has an incredible relevance today. It isn't looked at just as this historical monument, but in many people's eyes, it's, it's synonymous with India. Its image and its likeness are plastered on tourist materials for the country. You have heads of states and VIPs who go for the obligatory photograph to be taken in front of it. It lends its name to an untold number of Indian restaurants as well. Um, and the idea that it is a monument to love is continuously perpetuated. And the most outlandish example of this I can think of is the planned Taj Arabia complex in Dubai, which is a multi-million dollar complex in which a replica of the Taj Mahal is being built, although larger, well, on a larger scale than the actual monuments. And it's marketing itself as the premier wedding destination in the world. So this is an extreme example of the commodification of the image of the Taj Mahal and this idea of its association with love. But <laughs> on a more serious note, um, if we come back to the point about the Taj Mahal being synonymous with India and being used as a monument to represent the country abroad for tourism, when you contrast this use of the building, a Muslim Mughal monument, with the current trajectory of the nationalistic Hindutva ideology, which is being pushed and endorsed by the current Indian government, how do we reconcile these two ideas? And I think that a structure as iconic as the Taj Mahal can be used as a point of commonality to remind people of the diverse nature of India's past. Instead of attempting to erase part of the historical record, the totality of it should be embraced and the syncretic nature of the culture and society should be celebrated because it's that which ultimately led to the construction of the Taj Mahal. The people who built it were of different religions. The court which oversaw the administration of the empire which built it was comprised of people of different religions and different nationalities. And lest we forget the patron Shah Jahan had a Rajput mother and a Rajput grandmother. So I said before that buildings have an inherent symbolic importance to them. This symbolism can be adjusted over time and space. And I think today one of the most important symbolisms of the Taj Mahal is its relevance as a monument to syncretism and a shared Indian heritage. That, unfortunately, too many people are turning against. Well, Marine, that's a fantastic way to end the podcast, emphasizing the common nature of the cultures and societies involved in the construction and its history. Mehreen, thank you so much for sharing your time and your amazing knowledge. And also thank you for igniting the flame of love and reminding us to keep that legendary connection in our hearts. Thank you again, and I look forward to being able to welcome you at Asia House at some point when we can open again our doors to the public. No, my absolute pleasure, Juan. My absolute pleasure, Juan. Thank you very much for the invitation to participate. And of course, thank you so much to you, our listeners. And we look forward to seeing you next week for our next episode. Until then, stay well and stay safe. You were listening to the Arts in Isolation podcast, brought to you by Asia House. For more information, please visit our website, asiahousearts.org.